Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am really excited. I say that a lot, but the person that I have on today, Miranda McPherson, just really spun my top with her new book, and it's called The Way of Grace, The Power of Ego Re- Relaxation. Miranda is a spiritual teacher, author, the founder of One Spirit Interfaith Foundation in London, where she trained and ordained over 600 ministers, and today she leads the Living Grace Sangha in Northern California and holds retreats internationally. Miranda, welcome to Conversations. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. It is so great. I just loved your book and devoured it. You know, it's such an interesting thing. I I realized when I started reading your book that grace for me is this kind of amorphic thing, and I'd love to start out with just saying, well, what is grace? Yeah. Well, grace, in the way I understand it, is really direct experience of divine presence, Mm -hmm. of what really is, who we really are, you know, reality with a capital R. But, you know, grace has a feeling of fullness to it. And so it's like the nectar of who and what we are, bringing us back into direct experience of all the qualities of our true nature. So those qualities being, you know, infinite love, compassion, beauty, peace, joy, strength, clarity, pure awareness, and so much more. And so when grace comes alive from within us, as it does when we surrender, when we get out of the way, when we let the mind drop into the heart, then it really ends that sense of, you know, lack. It ends that sense of needing to search for something we feel tremendously fulfilled and our being becomes fulfilling. Mm. And so that's why I titled the book, The Way of Grace, because ultimately grace isn't just what you are, not just what is, not just the blessings and the transforming power. It's really a way of being, a new way of being that I feel our world really needs right now. Now you talk about the mind dropping into the heart. I love Mm -hmm. that expression and it would be a great bumper sticker but what does that mean? You know, a lot of, a lot of us talk about that, but, mm-hmm. you know, the mind right now, the community mind, the cultural mind is quite busy and yeah. quite filled with fear and quite chattering and people are kind of losing it out there. So when we drop our mind into our heart, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Well, firstly, I want to clarify, it's not just so when i say mind i mean our ordinary sense of mind our sense of being a separate somebody separated from everybody else and all that is and so when we're in that separated state our mind is very busy trying to figure out how to keep safe you know how to navigate through life how to do it how to achieve it you know how to sort out all the problems in our life how to get enlightened And so there's an agitation to our ordinary sense of mind that's always externally oriented, always looking and seeking outside of itself. And of course, I think everyone knows exactly how that feels Mm -hmm. because when that's the way we're moving through any day, we're stressed. We're not in touch with the grace at the core of our being. All these spiritual principles don't seem to be very accessible. And so it was Ramana Maharshi who kept talking about letting the mind drop into the heart. And so what he's meaning is that external orientation that is the energy of a separation, relaxing, dropping down into that deeper depth of heart. I don't just mean our emotional heart, but the heart of our being, the heart of what is. And when we rest in that depth, the mind naturally relaxes and quiets down. And the faculties of mind like discrimination, the capacity to see and understand clarity, wisdom, 
or those qualities of the mind that are quite beautiful qualities of perception, they then serve the heart. They serve the values of the heart. They serve the values of compassion and interconnectedness and essentially love. And so that is beautiful. So it shows us really the right relationship between mind and heart, that the mind's job is to serve the heart, not the other way around. So your term, I love, and I love the way you use it through the book, is ego relaxation. That's right. Uh, so let's talk about ego relaxation, because there's a lot of ego out there. Oh, well, yes. And over That's, here, too. That is the problem. You know, and of course, most people that I speak with are not new on the path. They've been, you know, exploring deep spiritual practice, inner work for a long time. And so if you have been on the path for any length of time, you know that just relaxing out of your mind or being still sounds so easy and ultimately it is. But what we meet in ourself in any given day can be quite challenging. And so often I think there's confusion about, you know, working with our ego and just wanting to sort of bat away our bad habits before we've really investigated them fully. And when we really understand that ego our sense of separation has a lot of suffering in it, has a lot of agitation and hurt and fear and confusion and ignorance and misunderstanding and knots from our history and wounds and all sorts of difficult things, then that tells us that what we need to do isn't necessarily just push past or aggressively try to stamp out our ego, because I'm not even sure whether that's actually possible, but to really learn to meet our egocentricity and others' egocentricity just with loving awareness, which means meeting it, feeling it, sensing it, seeing it, and actually learning to do nothing. Now, this seems so paradoxical to our ordinary way of moving through anything, but it's often these paradoxes that really are the most important linchpins of the path. And so what I have learned is that when you learn to stay present, feel everything and do nothing to try to change, transcend, fix or rearrange it, grace arrives. The transformation that we truly need becomes available. It bubbles up from the inside, either dissolving those ego obstacles or bringing the insight and the gifts that we need in order to let go and to let that letting go happen kindly, gracefully, and thoroughly. So ego relaxation really is, I think, a more feminine, integrated approach to working with our material and learning how to cease and desist the usual ego manipulation that's going on um, pretty much all the time. I think there's a basic belief stemming from the belief in separation that somehow I'm separate. I'm an object in a world of objects. I'm, I'm separate. And at the heart of all suffering, that seems to be a lot of what the suffering is. But there's also this place that we seem to be born into that something's wrong right at the very formation of our identity. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with me. Basically, something's wrong. And that develops in, and I need to fix it. Yes, it's very strong. Yeah. And this, this is because, you know, to incarnate into a body means that we go through a process, every single one of us, that some of the mystical traditions, certainly mystical Christianity and Sufism have called the fall from grace. We fall out of the state of unity the state of oneness. And from that, you know, the experience of falling from grace into a state of separation is not an abstract thing. It feels like, oh my God, something's wrong, as if you said. And the minute we feel that, the instinct is, how can I fix it? Of course, except the I that's now saying that is the one that's fallen from grace. And so its faculties are very limited. And let's not forget that this is all happening, you know, between the ages of ages of naught and three, when we're so tiny, we're so vulnerable, we're so dependent. And so we have to sort of 
learn how to just survive our experience, whatever that is. And, you know, we, we naturally find little workarounds to offset the fear, the distress, the helplessness, the difficulty of losing contact with the unity of, that is our foundation. And so that's a really important thing to understand through the heart, really, because when we see that that's what our ego is, a network of adaptive mechanisms and workarounds that have tremendous stress in them, tremendous fear and you know, vulnerability and helplessness that evolved into all sorts of strategies of control that, they, that we're fundamentally innocent in that. We're not bad people because we've got these sort of weird little wonky reactive patterns and habits. But in order for that to relax and not be the way we live our life, firstly, we have to see and understand our particular ego structure, our particular habits of fear and control and judgment and defense and to, to learn how to be present and feel the helplessness and the shakiness and the insecurity and that felt sense something's wrong and do nothing, which is what ego relaxation really shows us how to do. It's, it's a paradox because it's really an, an undoing of what we're normally doing. It's just a learning to relax. But what that will involve is feeling everything and not picking up a defense. And so that's why I wrote this book is to sort of really lead readers who I'm assuming are not newbies to the path, you know, through a journey of how that's possible and how to be with the things that are inevitably going to come up and how to really let the gates open inside of you to access, you know, the, the deep promises and the blessings that are, are possible for us all. So one of the things that I've been fascinated on for decades and decades, many decades, is the formation of the identity, the ego, and how it forms. And it's fascinating to me when I, you talk about early nurturing and the importance of that in your book, The Way of Grace. Personally, I had anything but that with abuse and suicide and the first three years were some people would say you should be in a mental institution and yet for me those ultimately became the path the wounding yeah. became the path and i see other people really struggling you had the best possible nurturing in childhood almost no trauma and yet it's oftentimes the people that have had the greatest traumas that really get that kind of path back to innocence. It's not always easy, but talk about the ego formation and that early nurturing. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I'll just retrace and say, you know, it's great that you're bringing this up because what you're sharing with people is that even when your early history has been very difficult with a lot of trauma and a lot of missing gaps in it, with a great deal of suffering, it's still possible to turn whatever the deck of cards we arrived in with, you know, that's in a way my word for karma, our deck of cards, to turn it into the path. And that's what we all must do, whatever those deck of cards happen to be. And I think, you know, one of the powerful things about having a lot of difficulties and traumas in your early life is it, it really gives you deep motivation for spiritual practice. And that was my experience too. You know, I was actually hospitalized for depression when I was 13 years old. And that really marked the formal beginning of my spiritual practice and path because I was so motivated. You know, something opened up in me in my darkest hour and I wanted to know everything I possibly could about how that could be a lived reality, you know, full time. And so there was no stopping my practice then because, you know, I had tasted something that I knew was really the way forward. But as you very rightly say, you know, sometimes people seem to have had a, a pretty good situation and there's a lot of a different kind of suffering. And so I think, you know, we can't really know actually, um, you know, someone else's experience. We can only, you know, grab our experience 
with both hands and work with it, work with it constructively. And that will mean, you know, opening a heart to whatever it is that we find and allowing our personal stream of experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to be embraced and integrated. And so for some of us that will require, you know, more working with learning how to trust. So I speak a lot about that because I see that for pretty much everybody, the capacity to surrender and open to deeper dimensions of consciousness really hinges so much on our capacity to trust that the underlying pulse of existence itself is loving and wants the best for us. If we can't trust that, it's going to be hard to let go, to let the mind drop into the heart, to let go of just one habit. And so, of course, there are a lot of things that limit our felt sense that the pulse of existence is loving. And a lot of that has to do with our early history, with our carers, our mother and our father, particularly our mother figure. But sometimes it has to do with, you know, sometimes there's a lot of good holding in our early environment and other things happen. Or we've become so attached to our parents and our carers that, you know, it doesn't occur to us that the love of being is, you know, is happening independent from personalities. Mm. So I, it, it's, it's an interesting one, but either way, it's something that I've never found a single person that doesn't need to develop more trust or work through some kind of obscurations around trusting the fact that in every moment we are held by a loving goodness that is independent from our past, our history, um, any ideas, it just is. And so the good news is, is that that can be developed. Our limitations to trust can be worked through and we can open to rest in a depth of love that is so total and so ever present and emerging through everything all the time. And that can help us tremendously to face whatever we need to face, you know, learn to be at peace, even though our world is going through some pretty intense times and there's not a lot that we can really rely on and that we can find equanimity with all of that. It's so powerful what you're saying. Trust and surrender like the front and the back of the hand. Yeah. And the surrender, that's a word that just I think people sometimes just glaze over and shut down about word surrender, but it's really about allowing what is to be what is and what isn't to be what isn't. And that's that's where the trust, of course, comes in. But when we're deeply steeped in fear and we're in a society that's filled with fear-mongering, really, I think it was a last vice president in the United States that said, you should be afraid if you don't have this particular pill or this particular deodorant, you ought to be afraid because you're not going to get the person that you want to be with or like that. Talk about that front and the back of the hand in the face of some of the huge fears that people are experiencing today in today's world. Well, I'm a big advocate of the fact that, you know, we have to, we have to turn towards fear, whatever it is that we fear, whether that's fear of, you know, the unknown, whether that's fear of not getting what we want, whether that's sort of ordinary neurotic fears about, you know, fear that we might not be lovable or fear that we might not be good enough or, you know, or bigger fears, existential fears like fear of death or fear of no control, which is, you know, really the underbelly of all that fears. We have to really turn towards that and meet our fears and see what they're really about. And not only see the, what we're afraid of, but to see who it is, the identity of the one who's afraid. Because if we don't really address the roots of our fear and see who it is that's getting caught in fear, then you know we're just trying to appease our fears all the time. And that's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And reinforcing the fear. And reinforcing the fear. So I give people a practice, you know, tell me something you fear and name one fear at a time, right? And when we name a fear, okay, so who does this fear belong to? And sometimes we find that 
the fears are from our personal stream of history or personal stream of experience related to things we've been through or moments that were difficult to us or things we didn't understand that seemed scary or overwhelming. And sometimes they're, you know, inherited fears, ancestral trauma. Sometimes it's fears that have been passed down through our mother's side or our father's side. Sometimes we find there's fear that's part of our cultural me, you know, being Australian and then I lived in England for 15 years and now I've been in the United States for 12 years. It's really interesting seeing that cultural layer and often it's very unconscious to us, you know, and some of it's to do with our gender, right? And to really let it be met and understood and seen for what it is. And then we can start inquiring, well, what else is here? You know, what's alive in the space beyond this part of me that's afraid and the fear itself. And so that's really akin to like diving deeper into the ocean. And just like many of us might've had the experience of, you know, that if we need to get deeper into the ocean, we have to deal with the big waves that are rolling into the shore. You know, if you've had experience of diving into the wave, then you know that your mind tells you, run, run, run the other way. You're going to get annihilated by this wave. And so you have to pluck up the courage to go into the wave, to to dive into it, dive into that very thing that you think is going to annihilate you. And as you dive into what it is that you fear and you relax, you know, just like the wave rolls over you and what happens is, is surprising. It's not a big deal at all. The hard part is just plucking up the courage to dive in. Once you dive in and relax, you get it's kind of gentle massage and you find yourself deeper in the ocean of consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's like that with fear. So learning how to work with our fear actually can propel us deeper into our humanity, into a, a deeper understanding of you know, this force of fear, which, you know, when, when it's really pure, actually can really serve us. So we need to be able to do that so we can discriminate between the mind stream of fear and the wisdom of our survival instinct that may be inviting us to take a different course of action that actually serves life. Mm -hmm. And that means personally and collectively. I love that metaphor of diving into the wave. You yeah. must have been a surfer as a child. Well, I grew up in Australia. <laughs> I know. That's why I, I said that. I was a surfer, but I had to deal with big dumping <laughs> waves all the time. I got dumped a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing a lot of teaching around overwhelm and stress and anxiety and how to deal with it. And it's mm-hmm. it, it generally when someone says they're having stress or anxiety, it's that something's too much. Yeah. And one of the things that you say in your book is that grace needs space. And what I found as a meditator is that, you know, it's mental, it's emotional, and it's physical, literally physical and mental and emotional space that's needed. And I'm I'm wondering how that need for more spaciousness relates to grace. Yeah. Well, see, ego relaxation is the practice that makes true surrender natural and authentic and possible. So it's learning how to just be here in the present moment and allow your experience and relax the need to try and fix it, change it, or control it. And so one of the things I'm always sharing with my students is whenever you notice some overwhelm arising, or you notice yourself starting to contract in body, heart, or mind, and you feel yourself starting to tighten up and kind of push through, muscle through in that tight, familiar, egocentric way, then the first thing that needs to happen is just to stop for a moment. And our mind will scream, I can't, I've got all these deadlines, you know, I've got to get it done. But if you really not follow that, everybody can stop for five minutes. They can. If I can, everyone can. (laughs) And so to actually stop and just come back to what I call the transmission of eco-relaxation, which is what I heard in the cave of Ramana Maharshi back in 2005. And it is, be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, 
seek for nothing, relinquish nothing, be as you are, rest in God. Now, if we don't try and figure out what that means with our mind, but we just take that as an invitation to just stop and let all of our ego's attempts to figure it out, deal with the problem, fix the seeming problem of me, fix the seeming problem of world, resist, reject all the activity. What happens is there's a reset. We find our way back to what is often called the zero point. And in that zero point, there's a spaciousness where everything meets and where you are spontaneously available for all kinds of dimensions of grace and blessings and support to find you. But that is not possible until you actually step back and allow some space. Mm. Mm. And so it's what I call taking an ego relaxation break. I recommend that people do it often. And, you know, so I've recorded it as a little download on the sanctuary of my website and it's free called be as you are. And I hope that people will just download that onto their iPhone and use it wherever they need to. Mm. And, you know, a big part of what helps us too is just, is just to come back to whatever our direct somatic experience is in this moment. And remember that it is not our job to figure it all out. Our ego can't figure it all out, no matter how hard it tries. All it knows how to do is regurgitate the strategies of the past that it learned between the ages of naught to five. And it's not very smart to put a five-year-old in charge of your life. And many people are running large companies and countries as a five-year-old. This is the problem. This is the problem (laughs) with our world. Exactly that. Ego consciousness running amok. Really, it's a very serious problem. And it won't get solved until those of us who are remotely interested to recognize what's really going on are willing to engage the practice ourselves. And it's when we find that reset that we are then able to stop trying to lead with that five-year-old consciousness that all it knows how to do is revert to stressful habits and patterns to actually prayerfully ask what's needed now. What's the action that best serves? What is elegant response here in this? What is the most useful thing to say? You know, often, you know, this sounds great. And, you know, some of my students say, yeah, Miranda, but what about when you're really having a tough time with your spouse and you're caught in your reactions? Well, if we have at least some kind of spiritual musculature from our practices, we are capable of taking a breath and of praying to that which caused us to even exist, that presence that caused us to fall in love with that person, to pray something like, put the thoughts into my mind and the words onto my lips that are healing and helpful. And so this is part of what it means to be graceful in and amidst life with its challenges, with its difficulties, with its intensity. And personally, I feel it's incredibly exciting that we're living in such times and that, you know, we have the the possibility of relating to spiritual practice, not as just something we do formally on a meditation cushion, but in every second, in every moment. The question is, will you practice? I just want to tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, that I'm talking to Miranda McPherson, and she mentioned her website, which is Miranda McPherson, that's M-I-R-A-N-D-A-M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N.com, and that's where you can find the meditation. I also, Miranda, wanted to clear up something that could be confusing, and that is that when you say stop trying to fix yourself, that doesn't mean that we should not face the things that need to be faced in our lives. Those are the portals for actually calling grace in, I think. Yeah, well, they're the portals from which, you know, actually grace goes to work on us. Yeah. And so, yes, the more we explore 
deep spiritual practice, the more we're brought back to the paradox. And so ego relaxation is inherently a paradox, right? Because it's asking us, be here, do nothing, you know. But what we don't see is all that's really asking us is to cease and desist the usual ways that we're manipulating with reality all the time and we're not aware of it. And so first we have to cease and desist the grasping, the rejecting, the judging, the controlling, the trying to lead from a five-year-old consciousness and figure it all out when we can't. And then the, the shaming upon ourselves, the judging of when we can't figure it out and all the anxiety that builds then. To relax that first, then that, it's, it's a paradox, but that is a, a deep spiritual practice. It's a spiritual practice of non-ego doing, right? Right. So it's, you know, we've seen similar expressions of this in Taoism, for example, language does wu wei. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, as in Buddhism as just being, or in Advaita as, you know, just resting in awareness. And so it has kind of commonalities to that. But it's, I think, perhaps working more with what Westerners deal with, which is, you know, just, you know, just crashing into their ordinary egoic consciousness without realizing quite how to, what to do with it. So what I love about this practice is it, it has a fourfold kind of flow, which is part of why I like to use the metaphor of, of a waterfall. And people will see that when they look at my websites, which is that the first thing the ego relaxation does is it helps us settle. It helps to settle the agitation and the judging and the jumpiness and the anxiety. And, you know, that has to happen before any deepening can take place. Right. So before any transformation happens, that has to happen first. Then what ego relaxation does is it brings a soothing to the parts of our ego that have suffering in them. And so let's face it, the real reason why most people are bumped back up to their bad habits and their personality structures and can't gain much traction on the meditation cushion is because there's suffering in their ego that has not been addressed and it needs to be addressed. And so ego relaxation not only settles you, but then it brings forth qualities like compassion or forgiveness or loving kindness. And, you know, this is a big part of why I say this is a feminine approach, because I understand very deeply that we can't let go into deeper spiritual territory until our suffering has really been met and understood with love. Then it starts going to work on dissolving the structures dissolving the position, dissolving the hardness, dissolving the history, dissolving our identification, dissolving you know, our, fix, our fixations and the things that they're built up on and you know, really loosening that. And that's quite a mystical process that requires a paradox of both deep dedication, doing our part, showing up for our practices, learning how to cease and desist the judgment and the rejection and the following of story, but yet at the same time meeting everything that reveals itself and opening our heart to it and learning to be there. Hmm. And something takes place that's quite miraculous. And that's why I call it, you know, this, the transforming power of grace. You show up for your practices and only you can do that. No one else can do that for you. A teacher can't do that for you. Your best friend can't do that for you. You know, just learning it conceptually won't do it for you. You've got to genuinely show up and do your best. But you don't do spiritual transformation. Somehow it arrives. And it arrives often when we're least expecting it and in ways that we didn't, we couldn't predict. And all of a sudden we find wow, you know, that place where that was just so full of pain before, so full of anger, it's not like that anymore. I can, I just don't feel that way. Or I know that I'm deeper than this old storyline that I'm not good enough. That storyline, I understand why it got there, but I know I'm deeper than that and it's not a bypass. Mm -hmm. And so in the process of that transformation, what happens is a deep humanization of our soul. We become 
more real, more embodied, more fleshed out as human beings. We have more understanding about the human condition. And so ultimately what's so miraculous about this transforming power of grace is that really what it does is it transforms our suffering and turns it into wisdom. And therefore it's useful. It shows us that nothing is ever wasted, that everything that we've lived through, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and everything that we're grappling with both personally and collectively can serve to make us a grace delivery device, you know, freer, fuller, more real, you know, more capable of embodying a deeper humanity and the, the beautiful noble virtues of our true nature further into the world in the ordinary living of our life. Hmm. And one of the ingredients I'd like you to talk about in this that creates the conditions for grace, at least from my perspective, and, and you talk about this in the book too, is stillness. We, we live in a frenetic, fragmented, kind of crazy world right now, and there are so many distractions. Mm -hmm. How do people get to that place where there's, again, enough space which comes from entering into stillness from my perspective. How do we get to that place? Talk about what supports us in, in the ingredients to let the ego relax. Well, I think we all have to look honestly at the structure of our life and what we're really being obedient to. You know, these, in this day and age, you know, every time I go and teach anywhere, I get my cell phone out and I joyfully, playfully invite everybody, I dare them to turn it off. Not silent, not on vibration. We actually have a cell phone switch off ceremony because, you know, believe it or not, you know, in the era that I grew up in where we didn't even have answering machines, you know, kids did just fine. You know, everybody survived. You know, it wasn't really that awful. And, you know, we didn't get distracted and we weren't just Pavlovianly obedient to the ping and notification of a Twitter feed or someone texting us and sharing what they ate for dinner that night. And I think, you know, we're behaving a bit like kindergarten with IT at the moment and that it's very, very important for us to just honestly look for ourselves at, you know, how we're using this technology and what serves and what doesn't and have some boundaries around it. And also to look at the living of our lives and what we're marinating in, in these very fertile times of the day, like first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And so, for example, if you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is you check your phone or you get on the internet or you go to email, well, it's going to be hard to, you know, to really start your day gracefully because you're just being pulled by so much stimuli. So I think it's very important to look at, you know, just the rituals that we lay out for the rhythm of our day and to be conscious about that and to think through what works for us and what doesn't, keeping flexibility, of course. And, and then I think also to, you know, to look at what practices we might want to make our best friends. You know, for me personally, sitting meditation is really nourishing and yet I've never been so busy as I am at this stage of my life. And so, you know, there, these days, you know, my meditation practice isn't anywhere near as long as it used to be. However, there's more musculature to my being. So there's more stability in my practice. There's more natural abiding as I'm going through the day. Mm -hmm. So I think it, a lot of it comes down to personal honesty with ourselves about, you know, where we're really at and what we need and to recognize that when we prioritize staying present to our deepest heart, everything in our life is going to flow more beautifully and our presence is going to be more beautiful for others. Mm. And so it's a tremendous act of service to make presence your priority. I'm gonna steal your cell phone ritual. I think that's brilliant. Turn it into a real ritual is a great way to start a workshop. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of the chatter that people get stopped in the, I can't, I'm not enough, you know, all the, we, we, we've talked about, you know, being with it, but 
it's there's this relentless uh, chatter, inner critic that so many of us experience. Talk about some practices, or maybe even, you know, it would be fun, Miranda, is for you to do one of your little meditations. You know, we have maybe, maybe a short, like, five minute, if, if you feel like it. I didn't well, warn you that. Well, how about share an inquiry, an inquiry practice? Around, yeah, an inquiry, right. Yeah, so before, I mean, big part of the thing, the, my particular approach, how we practice ego relaxation, is practiced in a trinity. So there's inquiry practice, there's meditation practice, and there's devotional practice. And they form the three parts of the triangle of how we live into ego relaxation. They're all equally as important. But, and they do different things. So the meditations help settle us, help us open into refined states of consciousness and rest. The inquiry practices are very powerful at dissolving obstacles, bringing the unconscious to the conscious and helping us explore dynamically our inner terrain. And the devotional practices open up our subtle body and our deeper heart. We need all three. But one of the things that's really useful with dealing with the, what's called the inner critic, I like to call it the, the superego, is to recognize that you can't appease the superego. You can't rationalize with it. You can't fight it. You have to disidentify from it ultimately. So, you know, there are various different ways that that can happen. But one of the ways that I've found to be really, really practical is doing a particular line of inquiry so we can do it together. Mm-hmm. So how about I ask you a question, Michael? Okay. I'll be your inquiry partner. Great. I love tell it. Me, tell me a difference between the voice of self-attack and the truth of your heart. Difference between the voice of self-attack and the truth of my heart. I can. I think I would start with a with a physical difference that there's a body constriction for me in when I'm in that self attack, and there's a softening when I'm resting in the grace that you're talking about, or the the heart, or the the kind of peacefulness. There's there's an allowing that occurs in the in the um, going into the heart. Thank you. Tell me another difference between the voice of self-attack and the truth of your heart. The voice of self-attack often is violent and going inward. And the truth of the heart is often expansive and going outward. Thank you. Take a breath. And just, I mean, we've just done two rounds. I would normally do about 10. Mm-hmm. But tell me how you feel. Much like I said, softened, open, relaxed in my body, not focused on myself. Yeah. So that particular line of inquiry came to me when I was working with somebody in the chair who happened to be in Northern Ireland. And this woman who I will call Mary, it's not her real name, she had come from a background of terrible abuse and she sat in my chair asking for help with depression. And in my own experience of, you know, having journeyed with depression myself and worked with a lot of people who've struggled with it, what I've come to see is that there are many different flavors of depression, but a really common one is the the sheer weight of self-attack, of self-judgment, of inner criticism, and the violence uh, and the heaviness that that brings into our experience. So I asked her, you know, to kind of inquire into this depression. And, you know, it was pretty clear that it was this kind of flavor of depression or judgment and self-attack and inner negativity about, you know, basically saying she was wrong, putting her down inside. And they asked her who those voices reminded her of. And she said she blamed a bunch of people, you know, her abusive ex-husband, you know, the priests when she was a child, the nuns when she was a child, and, you know, her difficult father, you know, all her authority figures. And so often what our superego, our inner critic actually is, is it's the messages that we've absorbed 
from our childhood authority figures, but that have got an aggressive tone to them, whether or not it was given to us with aggression. It's, it's hooking on our libidinal life force energy and turning that energy towards the self. And it's a way that it's like the outer layer of our ego structure. It's like the shrink wrapping of our familiar identity, you know, the guidance system of our ego. So, you know, was really beautiful. That question that I was just asking you just popped into my consciousness as I was sitting with her and she really floored me when what she said was that that voice was just all the negativity that she'd received, you know, amped up and that the truth of her heart is love. And this is a woman who had gone through horrendous abuse, who had even been in the Magdalene laundries, who, you know, had gone through things that no human being should have to go through. And she said to me, you know, my heart is pure. And I said to her, how do you know this? And she said, because no one had to teach me. No one had to teach me that my heart is pure, that my heart is love, that my heart is God. And that's how I know. It's not an impression. It is the deep, you know, new, what's called in Christian mysticism, the new, the deep innate wisdom of the heart that contains not only the compassion, not only the love, but the clarity that we need to cut through the, the commentary and the noise and the inner violence. Mm. And so once we contact that, usually through that, we stay with that question, it'll bring that to life. Then it's really a matter of allegiance. What do we want to give our allegiance to? Who do we want to listen to? You know. This brings up another really important, there's a couple areas I'd like to talk about, and we're getting close to the end, but regret, resentment, remorse, um, and forgiveness. The whole idea that, um, I can't remember who said it, but um, resentment is like taking poison and, then, and expecting someone else to die. That whole area of forgiveness, and very much in this, what you're talking about, is an important aspect. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, forgiveness is a very powerful aspect of the work on grace. And actually, you know, you don't do forgiveness. It, it is a very mystical transformation and purification of mind and heart when it happens. But really what it helps us with is that very tough terrain of human heartbreak, betrayal, hurt, those untenable sufferings that usually happen in, in our relationships with one another that are very hard to bounce back from at times when something really difficult has gone on. And really we need to not just pour pink paint over that difficulty, but to, of course, you know, meet the suffering, you know, contact the hurt, open to the, the rage, you know, without acting it out, but open to those very powerful forces of our shadow emotions and open to what's true in them. And so when we stay present and open through the hurt and feel rage and admit that we might have some hatred, you know, not that we would act it out, but if you've ever iced somebody out of your heart or shut them out of your life, that's hatred. Then you know, we need to sort of bring that to the light of our, our conscious attention and recognize that those very deep, difficult forces all relate to suffering that feels untenable and to which we don't know how to get over. Mm. And so we have to come to a depth of heart with those things, both those hurts and sufferings that feel impossible that we have received and those things that we have dished out in our ignorance, in our suffering, we've acted out and others have felt hurt by us mm. and we don't know how to repair it. And so I guide people into a depth of heart that is inspired by a passage that Ramana Maharshi talked about where he said, in the depth of the heart, there is a cave. He talked about it as the heart cave and that it's the only reality where the I, I shines, the I before me. 
And so we can journey into this depth of our heart with these impossible hurts and difficulties and quandaries, both on a personal level and the impossible sufferings of our world, and really lay them down as if like putting them on an altar and just asking for the grace to find us, to wash us clean of the things we, we of ourselves can't deal with, can't find our way through. And in my experience, when that grace comes, it feels quite literally like a, a mist, a healing mist, healing waters come over us and permeate us and cleanse us. And it addresses human error at the root and restores us all to the fact of the paradox of our inherent innocence and the fact that as human beings, we make mistakes and that we need forgiveness. We need the grace of forgiveness to deal with that in an honest way so that we can walk with wisdom in our relational life. We can address issues. We can meet conflict and not demonize, not pathologize, not cut off. And uh, it's very profound when that can happen. And so that was the chapter in my book that I spent the longest time writing because I, I know that that's where most of us have the most trouble. And certainly if you look at our world, it's very clear that hatred is the big problem on our planet right now. Yeah, which comes from separation, of course. Right. Miranda McPherson, I am so grateful to you. And I want to say we didn't get to talk about it, but at the heart of becoming more present, of course, is gratitude. And I just want to express our gratitude for all of our listeners here on Conversations for the amazing work and the beautiful book that you've just put out, your new book, The Way of Grace, The Transforming Power of Ego Relaxation. I'll hold it up for people who get to watch this. Thanks. Just, yes, so wonderful to spend time with you. And Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. I also just want to say to our listeners that I've recorded this as a full unabridged audiobook too, which is really unusual even for Sounds True. And so I'm reading the whole thing and I'm guiding the listeners through every inquiry, every prayer, every meditation. And there's quiz in, prayers, inquiries and practices in all of the 16 chapters. Yes. So I really hope that people will take advantage of that and really, really open to this friend that is here for them to make the path easier and kinder and more potent for them. That was my favorite part. It's all dog-eared on all of those exercises. So I'm glad. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So much love to you, Miranda. Thank, Thank you, you Michael. So much. It's and a pleasure. I hope we talk and meet soon in person. I hope so too. Bless you. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.